I want to look and follow the trade wars going into the next year. I think it's been easy for Trump to push them when the economy is running hot. Let's see how he does it next year if the economy slows down. Let's see what happens when consumers actually do see big increases in their goods and services. Consumer sentiment might go down for this very reason. It's easy to, you know, push on popular things when everything else looks okay. I really do think there's going to come a point where the political economy is going to kick in, where his base and, and voters are going to be very upset when things do get more expensive. For the last time in 2018, this is the Mercatus Policy Download, and I'm your host, Chad Reese. There are a lot of ways we could wrap up the year, but probably none better than to take a step back, look at 2018, and ask ourselves what the most important economic developments were. From trade wars to interest rate hikes, inverting yield curves to tax reform implementation, a lot happened this year. I've asked our guest today to be prepared to talk about, well, just about everything. Now, I actually want to start today with a disclaimer that I normally wouldn't include, and it's that we are recording this podcast mid-December just before the Federal Reserve's December press conference. So since we are probably going to get to monetary policy and interest rates and all that at some point, I just mentioned that in case Fed Chair Jay Powell does something shocking or surprising and throws everything we're about to talk about out the window. With that out of the way, I'm very happy to welcome some incredible guests to the show today. From the Washington Post, we're joined by economics correspondent Heather Long. Heather is a consistently reliable source for economics news and analysis, and her Twitter feed is one of the best roundups of economic news out there. Welcome to the show, Heather. Good to be here. And returning to the show, I'm pleased to have David Beckworth here with us. David is an economist here at Mercatus and is the host of his own wildly successful economics podcast, Macro Musings. David, thanks as always for coming on the show. Thank you, Chad. So a couple of weeks ago, we did an episode similar to this one on tech developments in 2018. And I want to start out with the same completely unfair question that I asked our experts on that one. And that is, if you have to pick one economic development news item occurrence of 2018, and yes, it has to be just one, no cheating, what would it be? This can be the most important in your mind. It could be the most interesting, surprising. What's your one economic development of 2018 that you think is worth talking about? Okay, I'll jump in first. Thank you, Heather. <laughs> <Saving> me. <laughs> I mean, the biggest development in economics of 2018 is undeniably trade and where we went with trade policy. Uh, I was just looking at the numbers again before coming over here. We now have tariffs on additional tariffs, new tariffs, I should say, on 11% of goods imported uh, in this in this country. So again, you can argue, okay, that's only 11%, but that's 11% that we didn't have massive tariffs on in January of this year. Uh, it's undeniably the biggest trade war, spat, battle, tiff, whatever you want to <laughs> call it, <laughs> uh, since the 1930s, since that infamous Smoot-Hawley era. That was a much, much worse trade war than what we're seeing now in, the, in that era. Of course, we're coming off the Great Depression, and um, the tariff rates were incredibly high. Many of them were above 45%, So, whereas a lot of our tariffs that President Trump has put in place are more like 10% at the moment. Uh, another big difference is in that early 1930s period, partly from the tariffs and partly from just the state of the world in that Great Depression time period, you actually saw a contraction of world trade. So world trade shrank by about a quarter, according to um, some various studies. At the moment, even though we have this heightened trade, spat, war, tiff, whatever, uh, trade is still growing. So it's interesting here to sit at the end, at the end of the year, and even in the United States, we're still in, importing more goods almost than ever before. Our, our trade deficit is actually growing because we are importing so much right now. So I think it's um, you know this is the ongoing story heading into 2019, but certainly the biggest. And I'm going to totally 
sheet and give I you it. what I think is the most <laughs> interesting. The one that um, is probably the least covered, but still in a critical story, is um, we've seen a massive rebound in blue-collar jobs. It started in 2017. It continued in 2018. And we've added over half a million jobs in goods-producing or blue-collar sectors. Last year, we are already above that number in 2018. We'll see what that final December figure looks like. We don't get a look at that until that first January jobs report. But um, my colleague Andrew Van Dyme and I wrote a piece. This is the fastest pace of job gains in the blue collar sector since the mid 1980s. And I think it says a couple of things, two quick points I'll make. Um, number one is that it's well known, at least in the last 30 years in the United States, that blue-collar jobs, particularly in the manufacturing sector, they tend to fall the, some of the fastest and some of the deepest in recession periods. And then they're some of the last to come back as we climb out of recession and out of periods of duress. So I think it's a good sign that we're seeing this. It's another reminder of where we are, you know, almost 10 years into a recovery uh, to, to find see those manufacturing and construction jobs coming back. Um, and of course, it sort of tells us a broader, perhaps, I don't know, that I've fully fleshed it out. But this whole debate about whether whether blue collar jobs are, are over, are they done with? Is this just a dead cat bounce, if you will? Or are we actually seeing a reversal either from because of America's new energy dominance as the oil price bounced back a little bit in the last two years because of some of the policy policies out of Washington because of um, the global economic uh, kind of upsurge in 2017 carrying over into the start of this year. There's still a lot to unpack there. I haven't fully done it, but I think it's a story that's not as well covered. And I just keep asking myself, where are these jobs? Because they sure are there in the data. Well, I'm going to segue off of Heather's remarks about the trade war because it relates to another story. And I'm going to call this the year of the market correction. And that is the stock market is down about 10% from the highs of this year, but we're close to where we started. So there's been lost in stock market wealth. And I think that's clearly, at least part of it's tied to what's been going on in the trade wars. Every latest development, the G20 meetings, oh, things are great. Latest Twitter statement from president, oh, things aren't great. <laughs> However, the winds are blowing. We seem to have changes in the stock market, as well as some of the Fed statements. We can maybe come back to those later. The other market correction that doesn't get a lot of attention, but is an interesting one, is Bitcoin. Bitcoin took a huge dive this year. So I think there's clear evidence that it truly was a bubble and it, it's fallen quite a bit. It was at a, a peak around 19,000. Now it's around 3,400. And Noah Smith had a great piece that I think kind of summarized why this has been a good experience. It's a true market correction, a true bubble crash that hasn't harmed broader economic growth, but it's taught us a lesson that there can be bubbles and to be careful with such speculative assets. And he particularly pointed to millennials as a good learning experience for millennials who may not remember the 2001 crash and maybe even have a hard time remembering the housing crash. So I think the market correction story is part of a big, bigger narrative going on that's tied to trade and some Fed policy decisions as well. I want to maybe, if I can, build off of the blue-collar jobs uh, note that you mentioned, Heather, because it, it occurs to me I was actually listening in preparation of this to Macro Musings 100th episode where you were on along with a couple other folks with David. And I think at the very beginning of that podcast, that was in April of this year, I think, you mentioned that one of the kind of top issues on your list of the last decade was this idea of wage stagnation. And I'm kind of curious now that we're at the end of 2018, is that still an issue, right? Do you all still see as wage stagnation kind of still a big deal, still a big puzzle for economists? Did 2018 change that? Did we? Did, are these blue collar jobs coming back changing the way that picture looks? 
I would say yes, it's still an issue. Unfortunately, the Federal Reserve doesn't agree with me on that one. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, they uh, sort of the mainstream uh, economists look at what at the data this year in 2018, and they see victory. They see, um, okay, you know, we finally hit 3.1%. We finally got over that elusive 3% nominal uh, wage growth marker. And uh, the, the, the trend has clearly been up in, the, in this in 2018. And, uh, you know, they think that this equals very basic economics. It's the productivity plus inflation. And that's, you know, that's running just how we would expect um, to see. And so and that is the, the labor market's gotten tighter this year. We've dropped to that 3.7% unemployment rate in September, the you know, lowest since 1969, that you know, we would expect some of that wage growth to accelerate. And, and that's what they're seeing. I think it's a little bit different. <laughs> I think um, when you know, just actually before coming over here, I was relooking at these statistics. And if you it's such a different picture industry by industry. So for instance, despite having this blue collar jobs boom, goods producing jobs are still growing at a much slower um, wage growth than service sector jobs. So the service ones are mostly in the 3% or even 3.5 or 4% in some cases like retail, whereas in the goods sector, it's still often down at 2%. I was also really um, looking at average weekly wages, which tend to be a little smoother than average hourly earnings. And I was, again, kind of my heckles went up or I was, my red flag went, went running up because a lot of the sectors that employ the most uh, what you would consider working class people. So um, things like, you know, workers in hotels or people who are in the transportation sector or who are working administrative service jobs. Um, you know, these are the families who are earning sort of thirty to $50,000 a year. Most of those have actually seen a decline in real wages in the past year. And that's really? surprised me. I mean, I've spent a lot of time this year covering the trucking sector. And anecdotally, everybody's talking about wages going up in that sector. But yeah, when you look at the national data, again, that weekly wage data, you're just not seeing it. And so again, I still get worried about the same problem of wage stagnation for uh, particularly the working class. We, I don't think we've solved it yet when I dig down. Yeah, I would add to that, that even though there's been some growth this year, there's still a long ways to go in terms of making up what was lost during the Great Recession. There's been slow growth, wage growth since the crisis. And it was interesting. I was actually looking at one of your tweets, Heather. You, you pointed out that we finally see real wage growth, and that's due to inflation dropping, which could be tied to oil prices <laughs> going down, which isn't the most you know, productive way to get real wage growth. We can't bank on prices always going down. We want to see real wage growth going up because of uh, real gains in wages. The other thing I, I would add to that, that, there is the productivity story and there's, there's structural stories. But I also want to add to that the role the Fed has played in the inability or the lack of strong wage growth. And, and I was looking at the data that you put on Twitter, and I went and looked at the Atlanta uh, Wage Growth Tracker. And you see wages growing really strong in 2014, 2015, they peak, and they begin to go down, and they're slowly beginning to go back up. And what happens in that period? Well, one thing that one story you can tell is the Fed begins tightening during that period. You can make the case that the Fed got ahead of itself. In fact, if if you believe the Fed's now current views of the natural rate of unemployment, then they were way too tight when they started tightening back in 2015. So I think one reason wages have, haven't risen as fast as they otherwise would is because policy got ahead of itself. And I think, David, to um, jump off that, uh, 
that if President Trump would make that argument uh, about why the Fed shouldn't raise a lot more, he'd probably get a lot more support. I mean, in many ways, as we head into 2019, um, I think probably the most the best argument for why the Fed shouldn't be so aggressive in their hikes next year, or maybe shouldn't do any any more at all, is is that the labor market is just starting to really show signs of strength again, and that let's run it, let's let it run for a while, particularly if we're not seeing more than barely even green shoots of inflation, to borrow from Ben Bernanke. I agree with you. I just fear he's poisoned the well already that, you know, if the Fed were to lay back, it could be interpreted as we're giving in to the White House. Although, you know, I I don't believe that to be the case. I just think it's harder to to do that. I was going to bring this up later on, but I'm glad we're kind of already on the interest rate topic. You all mentioned President Trump has obviously criticized the interest rate hikes. We've also seen a number of other economists, including Obama chief economist Jason Furman, had similar complaints. If you guys can put on your your oracle hats and look ahead to 2019, do you see either – you can, you can ignore whether it's political pressure or convincing economic arguments. Do you all see those interest rate hikes continuing? Do you think that the Fed is kind of where it wanted to get and we're going to expect to see them kind of backing off in, in 2019? I think the Fed has a lot more humility now than it did earlier in the year. Earlier in the year, there were Fed officials talking about rate hikes no matter what. They were talking about, well, if we invert the curve, so be it. John Williams said, What's the big deal if we invert a little bit if that's what it takes to get to policy normalization? Governor Leo Brainerd made a similar point when she said, well, the short-run neutral rate might be a little higher than the long-run neutral rate. So a little inversion is not going to kill anyone. Now they're a little more cautious in their assessment. And and the markets are, are pricing in fewer rate hikes. And I think Jay Powell's approach is very data-dependent. He's he's very much he's, – he's skeptical of the whole R-star and U-star – the the measures of, of natural rate of interest and the natural rate of unemployment. And I, I think that he's going to be more cautious going forward. But earlier in the year, it, they didn't seem kind of gung-ho. And, in fact, I came up with a, a little saying for them at this point, and I made it into a T-shirt. <laughs> <laughs> you may have saw, you saw it on. But the T-shirt read, we have the nerve to invert the curve. And now I think they, they've, they've kind of pulled back and they're saying we don't have the nerve to invert the curve because we're, we are getting worried. There are some signs that maybe we got ahead of ourselves. Yeah, you should say it. we don't have the nerve to fully invert the curve. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. <laughs> Since we kind of partially got there in, in recent days. I think you're right. I, I can remember in the spring and summer sitting there listening to Fed officials thinking they are just way too bullish, way too rah-rah about this economy. And they weren't factoring in the notion that fiscal stimulus was going was gonna to go away. I mean, you could even see it in their own projections that it was very clear that 2019 growth was going to be less than 2018 growth and 2020 growth. Growth is probably going to be even slower. Some people are throwing around the R, big R recession word. But even if you don't throw it around, like we're clearly going down. And and yet they, the projections, the Fed projections, they're what they call their dot plot, where they game out how many more interest rate hikes they would see. And it just looked like they thought that this growth was going to continue forever almost, um, even though they weren't actually putting that down on paper. 
I don't know. We'll see. I, I, I think maybe one and done in 2019. Uh, they were sm- the one smart thing Jay Powell has done is try to increase communication and try to get buddy buddy with Capitol Hill. No doubt about it. You know, as President Trump squawks about him, uh, you haven't seen that kind of negative reaction from Congress. And at the end of the day, they're really the oversight of the Fed. And the other thing I think he's trying to do, and, and I do give him credit for, is to be more transparent. And his shrewdest move this year was to announce back in I think it was yep June that they would have a press conference after every meeting in 2019. So eight of those. So that just gives them so much more flexibility. They don't have to. They're not tied to this. We have to act in March or we can't act again till June. And so I applaud him for that. I think that's a great point about Congress not echoing the president, particularly the Republicans on most other issues they do trade, immigration. They, they they follow the party line pretty closely. But it's been surprising and interesting, maybe an untold story of 2018 that they haven't on Fed policy. And you know, Jay Powell said, I'm going to wear out the carpets on Capitol Hill. It's kind of funny he said carpet because, as you know, <laughs> it's all marble. Right. And it's all the structure there. But his point's well taken. And I believe Bloomberg reported or, or one of the reporters told me they've documented 70 trips since he's started 70 visits over to Capitol Hill. That's so, incredible. So he's a very busy person going over there. And I, I agree with you. I think he is genuinely interested in increasing communication. This review they're going to have this next year, it's, there's an actual conference, but they're also having a road show. And I'm dying to see what this is. <laughs> you know, They're going to go around different parts of the country. I mean, I have this vision. They go to some rural town in Kansas, put on a microphone. <laughs> <laughs> throw up a tent. You know, a, yeah, a good old-fashioned you know, camp meeting evangelical. Come on in. We're going to preach to you FOMC policy. <laughs> um, I know it's not quite that. I want simple. the T-shirt for that. <laughs> yeah. That's where they're going to hand out the T-shirts. Yes, <laughs> but the, but I think they're making a concerted effort to reach Main Street, to reach Congress, to reach people, and I, I think it's a great time to do that, given the pressure the president has put on them. So you guys both mentioned this idea of uh, some sort of curve inverting. I mentioned it at the top. Just so that our listeners know, because I, I almost wondered if this wasn't going to be one of your all's most interesting things that happened this year. <laughs> Economists keep talking about the yield curve finally inverted. We kept hearing about, is it going to happen in 2018? Is it going to happen? It happened. So for our listeners who don't follow financial markets, don't stare at charts all day, what the heck is a yield curve? What does it mean when it inverts? And why do we care about that anyway? I'll take a stab okay, at David. Knock yourself out. Be a group effort. Yeah. <laughs> okay. yeah, you too, Chad. <laughs> The basic idea is if you're going to lend money to someone for, and let's say you can do it for two years or for 10 years, um, you know, 10 years is a long time. You don't know what's going to happen in the world or what's going to happen with your finances. So you usually you charge a little bit higher interest rate than you would if you're lending it to someone for two years or certainly for a couple of months. You know, that's, that's a much shorter period, much less scary time. Um, and so that's why we usually end up seeing these higher interest rates for what we call longer duration bonds, so the 10-year, the 30-year, whatever, the longer you go out. Um, it's the same way with a home mortgage. So when you go to the bank and you ask for the 30-year mortgage, they usually have to pay a little higher rate than if you get the 10 or the 15-year mortgage. And so what we saw in the last few weeks um, is this partial inverting of the yield curve. So suddenly the two and the three-year bonds were yielding higher than the five years, you know, which is unexpected. It's not what, what normally happens. And what that's starting to tell us is, you know, it's starting to tell us that people are looking at risk differently. They're 
they're looking at the future um, differently and they're getting very nervous about what might be happening in the next two to three years, you know, that maybe may be in a downturn or a recession or things are going to be a little bit more rough. And that's why they're demanding more interest than they would have otherwise. The reason people pay so much attention to this is because it's been a very reliable indicator of, of recessions going forward. However, the big asterisk that it doesn't mean recession tomorrow. You know, we got a lot of reader emails when we wrote a little story about this at the Post. Very smart readers are like, okay, well, you know, tell me the date. What is it going to be? I'd like to know when to liquidate my assets. (laughs) And I think it was UBS, the investment bank, they sent me some good data and they're like, well, when you see this this type of inversion that we saw, the two two or three year bumping above the five year, it can be anything from 150 days to 750 days before you see a recession. So, you know, it's, it's a long time. The average is about two years. And I think the San Francisco Fed has done some good research. And they say the real one to pay attention to is when I think it's the the six month goes above the 10 year. So we haven't seen that yet. You know, we haven't sort of seen the big kahuna, the big flashing light one, but we've seen kind of the yellow yield sign, I would say. That's my best summary. (laughs) That's that's a great summary. It's both a, a signal that markets are getting concerned it becomes a causal mechanism if it actually does invert because if it inverts, then it becomes more costly to make loans because you're borrowing at a higher rate than you're lending out. So then financial intermediation goes down. But it, it is a signal that markets are increasingly concerned. And what's been fascinating, at least to me this year, is that you know, early on when they were bullish, when they were kind of, ah, bah humbug, yield curve, <laughs> um, they were dismissing it based on the, the amount of risk or term premium built into these long-term rates and the same thing was said in 2006. Ben Bernanke had a speech. And again, I, I don't entirely fault him because I probably would have said the same thing in his shoes. But in 2006, I believe in March, he had a speech where he looked at a yield curve that was flattening and hadn't inverted completely. And he attributed it to the term premium. And if you go back and look at the data now, there was some tr- term premium compression, but there was also the actual expected short rate or the part of that rate that reflects economic growth was going down as well. And in real time, it's hard to know for sure what's driving it. Is, is it you know the growth expectation? Is, is it the risk part? But there's a lot of circumstantial evidence that all suggests that you know markets are increasingly worried. I mean, the stock market's going down. Um, we, concerns, as you mentioned earlier, how they're about the fiscal stimulus wearing off. And that's a nice segue to a, another story, if I might, Chad, jump By all into. Means. <laughs> and that is the robust economic growth we've had this year yep. from the stimulus. We hit above 4% growth, which is great. I, I'm happy it's helped some of these blue-collar workers yeah. presumably come into the marketplace. So I'm, I'm happy to see it, but it's it's come down a little bit in the last quarter, still pretty strong. But we had nice, rub, robust growth, and I think that's a story that many people didn't see coming. Trump saw it coming. <laughs> <laughs> and related to that, another interesting story is 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 the blow-up of the deficit. You know, I think it's around $800 billion this year. Next year, it's supposed to be close to a trillion dollars. And related to that is the fact that the 10-year treasury yield hasn't moved all that much, which tells me that there's still a strong appetite for our debt. There's still what I call the safe asset shortage story, that the world is clamoring for a store of value, and, and the U.S. government's one of the best places to provide it. And the fact that President Trump can run up big peacetime deficits and not lead to these exploding um, long-term treasury yields is a remarkable development. It's one thing to do it during a recession, but during peacetime when the economy is booming, you normally don't see this. It's troubling to see it during peacetime, but the fact that it still hasn't caused the bond market to freak out, it's just, it's, it's unusual. It's, it's unheard of. 
I'm going to say, uh, I think, I mean, you're right for 2018, but I think this is really a story of it hasn't caused the bond market freak out yet. Uh, I mean, I will say I'm hearing more of the uh, bond traders, sort of bond market makers saying that they are watching the auctions for debt, U.S. debt in ways that they haven't maybe since the 80s. Um, that they're, and what you're seeing partially because foreign buyers have basically gone away or they've really exited the purchases of U.S. debt. And and, the re- and this started before this year, but it's really exacerbated this year because of the strong dollar. So if you're European or whatever, by the time you buy a U.S. bond and then convert that back into your currency, you're getting basically no return. So foreign buyers see, for a number of reasons, no reason to be buying U.S. treasuries right now. So the demand has all had to come from the United States domestically to make up the demand. And at some point, you know, we're about to add another $200 billion to that next year. So we have... You know, there has to be really strong demand domestically. And while we haven't seen a huge freak out, we have seen those, partic- even on things like the 10-year, start to climb a little bit at auction, a little bit higher than what was expected. And so I don't know. I'm, I'm a little bit more angsty as we head into so 2019. 2019 will be a I don't think year. we'll ever be a chance where, or a situation where there's going to be no demand, you know, there'll be no buyers. But I do think we could hit, we could hit a lot more situations where, you know, that yield is several basis points higher than people wanted. Well, if it gets significantly higher, then it becomes a, a real issue in terms of government finance, yeah. paying the interest on the debt. But I, I still find it remarkable. It's about 50 basis points higher now in the tenure than it was at the beginning of the year. And that's a small price to pay for forward-looking markets, looking at this blow up in debt. So, But it, yeah, the thing about markets is they may be your friend one day. And the next day, they'll turn around and bite you in the rear and charge you much higher yields. We see that in emerging markets. They, they get great financing rates and then some bad news comes out and boom, they're effectively broke. So the U.S. government could face that predicament maybe next year. So we're, we're kind of already there, but looking ahead to 2019, put yourself forward December 2019. Let's say we come back and we're chatting and we're having the same conversation again. Complete complete speculation at this point. No one's going to hold you to these guesses. But what do you think of the issues that we talked about? Maybe it's wages. Maybe it's changes in the job market, types of jobs or growth. Maybe it's just economic growth in general, bond markets and debt. Maybe it's cryptocurrencies or the stock market. What will you all be watching going into 2019 that has the potential to kind of be the theme for the next year in the economy? I think the two most important things to watch are number one, Consumer sentiment and spending, whereas the consumer, the old adage, they drive 70% of the market. Uh, you know, the reason we still have so much strong growth this year and right now is because the consumer looks very good. Uh, at the moment, consumer finance looks pretty good and consumer sentiment is still quite high. But you're starting to see what looks like a little bit of forward-looking consumer sentiment. Um, when you ask people, where does the economy in 6 to 12 months, that's starting to come down a little bit, still very elevated levels. You know, but that can change very quickly. I just snapped. <laughs> and, if that, you know, and, and you know, if you were two or three months down the line into 2019 and that sentiment really starts to shift downward, um, we've got a major, major problem in the economy. The other factor that's been the added sauce that really got us above 4% growth, as David was saying, is business uh, business spending, that CapEx, capital expenditures. That was very strong in the second and third quarter and um, you know, was a huge 
purpose of doing the tax cut a year ago was to try to stimulate more capital spending, which should hopefully lead to more productivity in the United States, which has sort of been the missing factor in this recovery. Um, it looked great first and second quarters, but in the third quarter, it dropped. It was below 1% which is anemic. And so, uh, you know, even the White House was sort of scratching their head, like, what happened? This is not good. And so, again, looking at that heading into 2019, um, does that pick back up? Uh, if not, again, that's, uh, that's, <laughs> that's not a very good sign for where we're going to be at the end of 2019. Well, I want to look and follow the trade wars going into the next year. I think it's been easy for Trump to push them when the economy is running hot. <laughs> Let's see how he does it next year if the economy slows down. Let's see what happens when consumers actually do see big increases in their goods and services as consumer sentiment might go down for this very reason. It's easy to you know, push on popular things when everything else looks okay. And I really do think that he will have to probably pull back on some of his, his, his rhetoric, some of his, his, his decisions. I mean, NAFTA came out, NAFTA 2.0. <laughs> was a tweak on the original. And I know there in some some things been great. He's addressed China that could have that could have been addressed in other ways more effectively. But I really do think there's gonna come a point where the political economy is gonna kick in where his his base and, and voters are going to be very upset when things do get more expensive when the economy begins to weaken. I'll take the other side of that. I think you're right and that could play out. However, I think China could be President Trump's perhaps best legacy on the economy. There's broad, widespread agreement that China does not play fairly on trade. He has nudged them further along than any other recent president, Democrat or Republican. I personally hope that he keeps the, the pedal to the metal on this one, because I think there could be some real gains and that this is the dominant, not just for next year, but this is the dominant economic battle or relationship, to put it softer, <laughs> uh, of, the, you know, of the next 40, 50, 100 years. The U.S. versus China, and um, you know, the more concessions we can get, or the more we can simply nip them in the butt, remind them that we're here and that we are pressuring, and we will not roll over as we did under prior administrations. I think, I think the better. You're right; it could cause some short-term pain, no doubt about it. And, and on top of some other potential financial conditions tightening, it's going to be hard to to stay that course. But if we get that far down the road and then let up. I think President Xi in China is betting on your course of action, David. I think they were thrilled to get a 90-day extension. Um, they're crossing um, their fingers, hoping yeah. for a slowdown in the U.S. <laughs> well, yeah, and I think they're hoping, right, that in March, they are February, March, already things look a little bit different. Maybe so, more legal pressures on the president, and so he's going to give that's up. That's interesting. So not only do you, you and I sit in front of the TV and watch FOMC press conferences. In fact, you, you are part of them. <laughs> You were there, actually. I watched you, I should say, at these at the FMC press conferences. They also are a part of it. They're on FMC Twitter cheering on Jay Powell. Keep those rate hikes going. <laughs> yeah. they want Maybe. To see, yeah. that, part that's of the grand what, strategy. That's what to, the Chinese hackers are up yeah. to. <laughs> Forget Facebook. Right. Well, I could obviously keep you guys here probably until the calendar flipped uh, to actually be 2019, and we still wouldn't cover everything that we had talked about possibly covering today. But you do have other jobs to do, and I have to stay somewhat in your good graces so that I can invite you guys back at some point and you'll actually consider it. So because there's so much more to say on the topic, uh, it, we'll just go kind of go around the table and give our listeners some place to follow you guys online, something else to just keep up with your work for those interested in the, the kinds of things you're talking about. So Heather, we can start with you. If, if folks want to know the 
the kind of work you're doing or anything on the topic we've discussed today, where should they go? Best place to start is WashingtonPost.com. And then I'm at, at by B-Y Heather Long on Twitter. And my email is also on Twitter or on the website. So um, if you really disagree strongly with what I've said, <laughs> shoot me a line. I love to engage. And David? I'm at, at David Beckworth on Twitter. And then you can follow me on the podcast, Macro Musings, the weekly show that comes out discussing some of these issues. And for those of you interested, that's a that's a one hour episode uh, each week. So if if you heard the topics that were discussed today and thought, well, you guys you guys should have really really gone into the <laughs> yield curve. I want to hear more about the bond market. If that's what if that's what you crave, uh, head on over to Macro Musings and, uh, and listen to listen to David on that. With that, I'm going to go ahead and bring uh, Kate Delanoy on shortly for our What's on Tap segment. So be sure to stick around for that. And as always, you can find me on Twitter at Chad M. Reese for your questions, comments, episode ideas, complaints, or threats. And because it's that time of year, I will also mention that the best Christmas present you could give me would be to head over to Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast service, subscribe to the show, give us a rating, and maybe even recommend us to a friend you think would enjoy it. So with that, thanks to our guests for sharing your thoughts on an exciting year. We all look forward to following your work in 2019 to see what happens next. Thank you, Chad. Happy 2019. And that almost wraps us up for 2018, but we do have our final What's on Tap segment of the year. I'm joined, as always, by co-host Kate Delanoy, and today we are sampling not a beer, actually, but a rosé cider. This is from Supreme Core. It's their Ivy City rosé. So Supreme Core is a D.C. cidery, and this cider is conditioned on red wine grapes from City Winery in Ivy City. So while I am pouring that... Kate, why don't you let us know what's going on at Mercatus to close out 2018 and ring in the new year? Well, today is Christmas, and it is also the last day of our 12 Days of Christmas Trade Myth series. Very exciting. Yes, our scholars Christine McDaniel and Veronique DeRuji have been very busy over the last 12 days breaking down various myths that people believe about trade and explaining what's actually going on. So those are all up on the bridge, and I recommend folks check them out. Um, you know, you can always share them with the family tonight around the dinner table and <laughs> talk about what's going on. Endorse. And my favorite, by the way, is myth number seven. I'm not going to spoil it, but check out myth number seven. And then we also have a really cool series that recently wrapped up on the bridge from Bob Grayboys. Bob is our healthcare innovation scholar. And it's really a series about the the din, the cacophony surrounding the healthcare debate. And he takes a really kind of interesting approach looking at how tech has come so far in the last few years, making our lives better while also becoming cheaper and more available. And healthcare hasn't done that. And so really looking at, and he says the problem is because we're talking about the wrong things. We're so focused on talking about how do we fix insurance. Insurance isn't the same thing as healthcare. So I really recommend that everybody check that out. It's a great kind of way to think about it, wrapping up 2018, and what should the healthcare debate look like in 2019? Yeah, there are five essays in that series, and some of them are a lot of fun. Uh, at least one in particular, he kind of just goes through a sample of all these different types of innovations that have come along in the healthcare market that a lot of people, including healthcare professionals that he works with, don't know about. Glad you highlighted that one. Yes, and then um, when we are all back in the new year, on January 3rd, we are going to have a paper out from Mark Joffe. Stay with me. This one's a little bit uh, wonky, but it is talking about how XBRL language could be used for state and local financial reports. And XBRL, for our listeners, that's the new radio station we're starting up, right? 
sure. Yeah. <laughs> Jam bands all the time. Always. <laughs> um, no, XBRL is a way of taking financial and business reporting and putting it into a language that can be read with XML. And basically what it means is that it makes it so much easier for computer programming and other folks to actually dig into this material because it's a lot. And so it's a really it's it's wonky, but it's exciting to think about how this technology can be improving the way we understand what different governments are doing and, you know, different regulations that are there. So sounds great. Well, let's go ahead and transition to the part that I know everyone has been waiting for, which is rating our cider. We have a wonderful producer who helps make this show happen named Dallas, who is obviously involved in every episode that we produce, but doesn't always have a mic in front of her. Dallas is the one who does all the work that no one necessarily sees, but makes all of us sound like we have halfway an idea what we're talking about. Uh, And Dallas actually recommended that we do a cider at some point on What's on Tap. So it seemed to make sense to bring her on. So thanks for coming on this side of the microphone, Dallas. Thanks, Chad. So I'll let you kick it off. What did you think? Yeah, I was never really a huge rosé fan or like a wine fan in general. But then when they started doing this rosé cider mixture thing concoction, it's made me more of a fan. And I actually really like this one. And I love the flavor and I love the kind of like sparklingness behind it. Sparklingness is the word I just made That's up. the technical term. Yeah. And um, yeah, I would give it maybe a 4.3 out of 5. Okay. Yeah, big fan. I I also enjoy it. I love it's very festive. It's you know, you can't see it in podcast, but it's a nice <laughs> pink color. Um so definitely feels seasonal. I like it. I'm going to give it a 4. I'm a fan. I'm not usually a cider guy, but I like that it's more dry than sweet. I like it. Maybe not quite as much, but I'm going to go 375 out of 5 stars. Well, and before we toast the year, uh, it is Christmas, so got you guys some presents. You are too kind. Um, I'll let you unwrap. Oh, it's a pint glass. How appropriate. <laughs> it is a, it, for our listeners, it is a pint glass that says be hoppy uh, with a nice little hop, uh, yeah. hop cone on there. So thank you very much, Kate. That was yeah, very kind. That was very sweet. Thanks, Definitely. Kate. It's been a fun year drinking different beers, and I'm looking forward to more in 2019. Well, cheers to that. Cheers. Cheers. <laughs>